All I'm saying, Captain, is that maybe there's little room for flexibility in interpreting Starfleet's protocols. Frankly, I'm not sure they were ever intended for situations like this. I haven't seen any evidence that they've let us down. Maybe this situation with the Kazon is the first example. Maybe we have to examine Starfleet's principles with a cold eye and ask ourselves if they're really applicable here. Welcome back to Delta Flyer. I'm Thad Haight. And I'm Stuart Hollis. This week, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 14, Alliances. We've all come together to talk about this episode with you today. And we're joined this week by our good friend, Barry. Hello, everybody. It's nice to be here. It's good to have you here. Listeners may know Barry from his own podcast, Politrex. Uh, so yeah, Politrex, uh, what we do is uh, my uh, wonderful co-host, uh, Mr. Shishankavaru, and I talk about all of the socio-political, um, moral, all those sorts of underpinnings that, that uh, work with every Star Trek episode we see. Star Trek is very much a um, a political look, and actually a very good friend of ours, um, Bill Smith, mentioned that uh, Star Trek is basically a mirror to society and humanity, and sometimes that mirror reflection that we see back we like, and sometimes we don't, and so it's always worth a conversation. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are, you know, much more highbrow than we are. Uh... <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> And I can definitely see how you would have an easier time of it with uh, Star Trek than, say, if you had had a podcast called, like, Polita Friends or something. Oh, yeah, no. Trying to find the politics in each episode of, yeah, and the machinations of of uh, Ross and Rachel. <laughs> I was going to say, there's actually a lot of politics in Friends, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, th I think Polita Frazier would be a lot easier. Polita Frazier <laughs> you could totally do. Or Polita Full House. That would be, uh, that would be an exercise, I think. That would be interesting. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't really remember anything about Full House. I know that there was an Uncle Joey, and that's about all I remember. And there's like a really creepy puppet for a while. I, I yeah. I mean, I used to watch it when I was a really tiny person. I don't remember the creepy puppet. Yeah, the the one guy, Dave Coulier's character, he like had this like terrifying chipmunk puppet for a while that I always <laughs> just couldn't handle. Oh yeah, because he was. Yeah, because he he was also he was like a voice actor, or he was some sort of like entertainer or something like in his day job, and he would like bring his work home with him. I think. Yeah, it was kind of like a life imitates art thing. I think for Dave, uh, yeah, he he, he was kind of like a struggling comedian in the show because he was a struggling comedian in real life. Sorry to throw shade at Dave Coulier if he's one of your listeners. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> I mean, anything's possible. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's launch into this episode. It originally aired on the 22nd of January, 1996, and was directed by... It was directed by Les Landau, who has directed 34 TNG, 14 DS9, 9 Voyager, and 1 Enterprise, uh, and was written by Jerry Taylor. Cool. We've talked about Jerry Taylor before, so I won't oh, yeah. go into her credentials. Our synopsis from TV Guide. After an attack by the Kazon, Chakotay persuades Janeway to form an alliance with the dissident Kazon faction unaware that Neelix has contacted another race who are sworn enemies of the Kazon. Uh, I mean, it's... That whole unaware thing almost... Like, the first half is correct. Yeah, like... Yes, technically they were unaware that that happened, but I feel that makes it sound much... Like, More that insidious. particular thing was a point of drama, which it wasn't. But, anyway... Uh, 
Memory Alpha says, after continuous Kazon attacks against Voyager cost the lives of several crew members and the damage to the ship continues to mount, Janeway seeks an alliance to secure Voyager's passage through the Kazon Collective. Collective? First time we've heard that word. <laughs> They're definitely yeah. not a collective. No. no. <laughs> I would say a hodgepodge. They could have said hodgepodge. I mean, just Kazon territory would work. Yeah, like yeah, you know, they're not even like a loose confederacy. Like no. they're they all seem to begrudgingly like sit down at the table together sometimes, if only to figure out better ways to kill the other ones. By the end though, I'd say they're quite the principled coalition. Yeah, I would say that's fair. So in the very beginning of the episode, I have a bit of a complaint. Uh so we see Voyager getting bat getting battered, we see uh crewman Kurt Bandera being injured and transported to sickbay. And then while we talk, we're talking about how the ship is in still in very desperate straits because the the thrusters aren't working, etc., etc. Torres is just standing in sickbay while the doctor works on Bandera. Yeah, I was really thrown by that too. It, it, by the time she's standing in sickbay, it seems like a lot of the chaos has subsided, but they had a hull breach on deck four, I think, and nothing was working. Shields, like, not even thrusters, yeah. the warp core was offline, like... Yeah, I get that she's concerned for her, you know, subordinate and crew member and friend, but at the same time, you have bigger fish to fry right now, Torres. I don't know how political you guys want to get on this one, so feel free to take this one out if you want. But I feel like there's a lot of sanitation that takes that takes part, or sorry, that takes place at the beginning of this episode in the sense that they really try to be like, "Oh my gosh, it's just so desperate, it's just so terrible." There's nothing they can possibly do if only there was some kind of alliance they could make. I, I really feel like they they just laid the the mayonnaise on really really thick here, kind of almost like a like a World Vision commercial where they're like, "Look at all these poor starving people. You should give some money in." independently and it's like ultimately it's it's the factors of like imperialism and colonialism and the cold war that caused all these people to starve and it's why we're eating so well but you know like they 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 just turn it into this whole like there's just no other way think of the crewmen and or think of the children depending on what you want to look at it that way so yeah i really feel like they they hammed it up a little more than they needed to yeah i would tend to agree with that this this episode i do think does does cause you to um it causes you to to really think deeply about the situation in a lot of cases, but at the same time, it also I don't know it it, it reminds me of the difference between Star Wars Battlefield One and Star Wars Battlefield Two, uh, the old PlayStation Two games. One was like a sandbox where you could kind of make your own decisions, whereas Battlefield Two made it seem like you're making your own decisions, but actually you're like on like a basically like a a very very wide rail game. Um, and I feel like that's sort of the same idea here. Like, it, I think they want you to think that you're coming to your own conclusions on how the uh, on how Voyager's crew should act, but actually, you're on a little rail, and they're trying to guide the way you think. Yeah, I would. I could. I could agree with that. Also, isn't it Battlefront? Oh, right. I don't know enough about Star Wars. I, I just yeah. I am only aware of the games. I've actually never played them. Other than I played. I think I played. I played the beta for the new one from a few years ago, but that's it. I played the new one once for like 15 minutes with my nephew. Then that's like that's it. Like that's my experience with that and most Star Wars shooter games. Cuz there was also the like the RP the 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 uh the Memorpicker for a while. 
Yeah, I I played it when I, uh, I I when I was in university. I played it a bunch with a couple of friends, but I was at their house. So, and I remember they, they that's what they, their big complaint was with the second one. So, mm. yeah, oh, it sounds cool. like from what you're describing, it sounds like the first one's where it's at. I think it was fun. Yeah, I mean, I played it a lot when I was. I like playing. Um, there's like a dude who had a hat, and I played him all the time. <laughs> <laughs> the only Star Wars games I ever got into were uh, the original Knights of the Old Republic and um, the uh, the Jedi Knight games back in the day. So how fast are the thrusters? You know, I don't know, but I bet Memory Alpha does. Because you know, we're we're told that everything's offline. Belana thinks that she can get the thrusters working. Tuvok then later points out that the... Captain, my readings indicate the navigational reflector has sustained massive damage. It will be necessary to repair it before we can achieve more than thruster power. So it, so it must, like, still be kind of working. Because one would assume going at anything faster than a literal crawl would be a problem unless you have a deflector. They have armor plating. They also have a secondary deflector, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, yeah, but they also do have armor plating. Like... If they're not, I'm not sure how fast random objects in space are moving ordinarily. So I don't know like how much risk there is. I feel like anything that's anything that's moving insanely fast is going to cause a problem for the ship if the deflector is offline, no matter how fast the ship is moving. So I think their concern is just coming across, you know, like very small rocks or pickup trucks. Those float, you know. Yes, especially in space. Mm. So, you know, like if they came across another pickup truck, for example, and they're cruising along at like 100 miles per hour, it might dent something, but they have armor and it's a big ship. Yeah, anything anything bigger than a Winnebago, I would say they might have to worry about. But yeah, no, like an old 1930s Ford isn't going to be that big of a deal. Right. But I, 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 I always sort of wonder about that in the sense that, like, I wish, you know, this is this is really kind of un, unnecessary anyway and kind of like an oblique wish that I have. But, like, wouldn't it be neat to just see, like, casual spaceship shots of, like, different starships moving around and, and like, watching larger rocks, like, get thrown sideways by the deflector array? I've that never seen so that. Cool. That'd be just sort of neat to see. So we have... Detailed descriptions and tables of how fast each of the warp speeds are, uh, but we don't have good information on how fast thrusters and impulse are. Well, I, I think like full impulse, full impulse is I think like one quarter c, if I recall correctly. But yeah, I don't think we ever got any information on how fast thrusters are. But I oh think- well. If you think about like the speed of light in that sense, it takes 45 minutes for the light from the sun to reach Jupiter. And if they can go one quarter C, if they're at impulse, I mean, basically, the, like if you think about the distance between solar systems and all that jazz, honestly, like one quarter C is basically standing in this in the single spot. If you think about space. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. 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 But if you are going one quarter C and you hit something, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have a bad day. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So impulse is useful like inside a solar system. Yeah. But it, it it's never going to be interstellar speeds on any sort of convenient time scale. No. So after the memorial service, we get a um we get a conversation between Chakotay and Janeway about the idea that perhaps Starfleet needs to take some more Maquis inspiration. 
and start getting kind of down and dirty in their dealings in the galaxy or in the quadrant rather just in order to survive and this is prompted by at the memorial service crewman hogan which is our first appearance of crewman hogan he will appear multiple times again until his untimely demise uh mentions to ask janeway what they're gonna do about it because he's fed up Mm -hmm. and i would like to make a brief complaint about rank pips again we have Maquis Crewman wearing what appear to be NCO rank pips again. Yeah. Can it really be called a pip when it's the lozenge? Okay, rank insignia. There you go. Would those be squeaks? <laughs> there's there's pips and there's squeaks. I think those would be considered squeaks. There you go. I like it. Oh, dear. But they have... But anyway, we have two crewmen in this episode, uh, Hogan and Jonas, and they both have a squeak. <laughs> With one black line in it, which, if it were a pip, would indicate uh, an NCO. Yeah, I, I never really thought about that. So, my, and I complained about this in Learning Curve when uh, we had a uh, crewman Dolby with the same thing. And I, I think it would make far more sense to me that if you need to show the stupid provisional rank to show that they're other, which you shouldn't need to, but if you do, that it should just be a completely empty one for a crewman. Yeah, that would make sense. Like you, Barry, I didn't notice this stuff. I leave it to my co-host to care about the rank insignia. I care more than enough for both of us. Exactly. (laughs) But if you really go down to it, when you think about the actual physical structure and chain of command that would get confusing if if higher ranking officers started dying or or having to renounce their their commission or something like that as you get lower down it does seem like a bit of a fruit salad of of pips and squeaks that these guys can just throw on their necks and run around with it so no that that does actually like if you if you really think about the functionality of of a starship you know those things would be necessary yeah and we all we can also point out the even beyond that there's the craziness that until like ds9 season five which would be voyager season three uh we all non-commissioned officers had the exact same insignia regardless of what rank they were that is strange they just had the black pip in season five uh o'brien finally got a separate little patch to indicate that he was a senior chief but before that, they were all just black pips. Yeah, I like those that's... new things that they made, the the, the, yeah. the thing that O'Brien wears. I find it opaque. I, I can't really understand the system. I, I've looked at it online at the oh, different... Oh, I don't understand it either. It Yeah, there's detailed information about it online, but it's not obvious at a glance what it is. But like you Braille. Can, but you can tell that they are different. So, presumably, you know, if your job entails working with these people, you probably have figured it out. I... Sometimes, because I, I work at a school, I'm a school teacher, and uh, I actually have everyone in my the, my fellow staff ranked out with with pips as to what their rank would probably be. <laughs> so I keep that in the back of my head. I do that even with like friends. I did that when I worked at a grocery store when I was like 18. So it's just something I like doing. I don't know. So did you make yourself the captain, or? Well, technically, I would be the commander uh, where okay. I work currently, but I've been ensigns before. I've been. Lieutenant Commander, you know, depends on depends on my capacity. Nice. 
So we find out that Voyager's been attacked four times in two weeks. Seems a lot. Can't they figure out a way to run run dark, run silent? Because space is like super duper big, so they're only like they're all just using sensors, and there has to be some sort of way to mask the ship from sensors. Yes and no, uh, because running silent would entail turning off the engines, which would mean not going as fast, not going at warp. No, it doesn't. So, I liken it to, and, you know, so does Star Trek, they liken it to naval operations. It's probably more similar to submarines, since they have, I mean, yeah, sure, submarines have periscopes, but you don't use a periscope to find another submarine. You use sonar to find another submarine. Okay, you're saying that they shouldn't be using their active sensors. No, what I'm saying is that there are submarines that are quieter than the ocean. And that's what mm. running silent means, because the ocean itself makes noise. Right. And if you and if you can mitigate the amount of noise that your ship is making, if you have well lubricated propeller shafts that don't make noise when they're turning, if you are not moving so fast that you're cavitating in the water, if you have low noise output power generation power generating facilities such as say a nuclear reactor, then you can run silent and then ever and then you know the whole crew is also aware like it, the, you know they have noise protocols in place to make sure that the no one's like banging around and stuff like that and i, I, I don't know like all the little details of it but yeah like this running silent can, does not mean not moving which is how you can get in trouble if you drop a dime and a quarter on this uh, when you're pay- paying for a candy bar mm-hmm. <laughs> Or if, like, Crewman Jones has, like, a really bad case of gas or something like that, they're like, get back, like, put a pillow under you or something. Be quiet. That, 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 was, a, uh, that was a deep cut down, on, uh, down Periscope reference there. <laughs> I'm glad you ref- I'm glad you recognize the reference. Deep, uh, deep cut fart jokes are, 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 my, <laughs> uh, are my ammo. Well, you know, I guess we're sort of coming back to Politifraser on that one since Kelsey Grammer's in that movie. <laughs> yes, oh my gosh. And he's in Star Trek. Yeah, he yes. is. <laughs> Kelsey Grammer, everybody. It's all connected. Okay, so does running silent work in space, though? Because space makes less noise than the ocean. I don't know. There's background background Big Bang radiation, and there's, like, magnetars and quasars and, um, you know, different types of uh, binary stars. I feel like space is like a, like a cacophony of noise all the time. It's just we can't hear it due to its frequencies. Well, there's also, I mean, there's also the consideration that space is a vacuum, so they could be having like a, oh, good like, like a Euro rave on every deck of Voyager, and, it, and like you couldn't hear it six inches outside the hole because space is a vacuum. Uh, if you put your ear to the hole, you could hear it. My new headcanon is that they have a rave anytime the camera is not on them. <laughs> yeah, any, any, any room not having a scene is just right. partying down. Car- Cargo Bay 2 is a constant rave. Except when it's, so being many attacked, other yes. <laughs> Transporter room too, though. Oh, they're always having parties there. No, but in this running dark is probably like a more accurate thing. It's to you know limit their own EM emissions, um, limit their thermal emissions. But they would still have a warp trail, and see if they could figure out a way to mask their warp trail. I don't have any ideas how, since warp technology doesn't exist. And I don't know how it works, so I don't know how they would go about doing it. But like, surely there's a way. Yeah, so what gets me and continues to get me is, how are they still in Kazon territory? 
Right? They've been like, you know, we found at the beginning of this season that they've been in spa- they've been in the Delta Quadrant for 10 months. We're now 14 episodes in, so surely it's been almost like, you know, a year and a half easily. Has it? Cuz Ensign Wildman hasn't given birth yet. Ah, oh, goodness. What's the gestation period for whatever her husband is? Katarian, I think is what he is. Yeah, and no, I don't know if it would if like, so which species human. would dictate it. Yeah, like, how does that work? I don't know. I mean, I feel like when the baby's done, the baby's done. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> Stunning display of logic there, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Stewart here. Uh, well, when, when am I due? I don't know, when the baby's done. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's not wrong. Like, if no, you have a species that gestates in a month, it's not like the kid's gonna sit inside the human mother eight more months just because you know, the pregnancy timer hasn't gone ding yet. Mm. The baby's gestation period is what dictates this. Yeah. <laughs> if only if, if only we could go ding ding for certain certain biological necessities. If I, if I heard a ding every time I was actually thirsty, I'd probably drink more water. Yeah, no, that'd be so convenient, because honest to God, like, I'd never know when I'm thirsty. This is actually explained. Uh, they do explain it years later in a sixth season episode um, that the that her that it was a longer pregnancy than humans would normally have because of the half Katarian genes boom there we go yeah so okay so 18 months is the, was the gestation period for naomi wildman okay well then in that case then yeah sure like and since let, we're... You know, let's say they've been in space now Another eight months since uh, Caretaker 2. Yeah, because, what are we? We're in alliances, we've got... Oh, jeez, we still have... We still have eight episodes until Naomi Wildman is born. Well, I I guess we have that to look forward to. (laughs) So, I guess, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll say this is probably like 15, 16 months. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, 16 months, year and a half, something like that. Okay. Alright. Okay, so... Crewman, not Dolby. What was his name? Hogan. Yeah. Well, which one are are we the talking one, about? The one who the one who cornered Janeway. That was Hogan. Yeah, and so he was advocating. It's like, well, let's just give them our technology to make them go away, and then when they come back, it like a week later for more tech, just give them that too. Like, how like, how dumb and short sighted is that? A little bit. I think we're going to get I think we're going to get into it later but like I also think that when Janeway chooses the Trabe over the Kazon I feel like there's a, a fair amount of idealistic short-sightedness there too but we're, we'll get into that later. But yeah, I think I think basically everyone here is just in this like horrific state of desperation that really they were they're going to try anything because at this point the attacks they're getting and all that sort of stuff it's so incredibly un- unsustainable. Yeah, and I I I do have some questions about sustainability like how are they fixing the ship they've been attacked four times in two weeks <laughs> they like many people have died which means that eat like all the attacks have probably been about as bad as the one they just went through how are they repairing the ship yeah and my big complaint on that is even if they have the resources to repair the ship why are they making the ship look pretty every time why are they <laughs> expending the extra resources to cover up all of the char marks and fix the hull and repaint the hull and why why aren't they just fixing it so it works and continuing on since they have limited resources 
I mean, obviously, they would be, but models are expensive. Yes. It is kind of a shame they didn't build the model such that it had replaceable components, because then they could have been giving it, like, signs of battle damage as the seasons wore on. Yeah. That would actually be pretty cool. And we could see an example of this from just you know, several years in uh, in the future when they made Enterprise, where they didn't use models and they were CG. Uh, Enterprise Season 3, the ship does get progressively more battle-scarred as the season progresses. Yes. I mean, that's the good part in the sense that that, um, clearly someone in the writer's room of Enterprise was thinking about that with Voyager, where they're like, yeah, they're they're getting they're getting, you know, into all these scraps all the time. They're not anywhere near Federation space, say like even like the Enterprise, even though it goes on sort of deeper dive missions and stuff like that, it can get its repairs done because it has access to the resources with which to do that. But yeah, no. I also, yeah, would have would have liked to have seen more outside board technology incorporated in later seasons of Voyager too. But here we are. I mean, we get that sometimes in sort of like the, when they have to use it. I can't remember what episodes in the future there are times where they've used it, but I, yeah, I haven't, I, I'm not a Voyager completionist yet, to be perfectly honest. For shame. Sorry. Uh, well, Year of Hell, the ship definitely gets pounded and looks, looks like it's been taking damage, but Year of Hell literally ends with a reset button, so... Okay, not literally. It's not a button. The ship crashes in it, anyway. It ends with a <laughs> with a reset button. Right. So after her conversations with Hogan and Chakotay, Janeway turns to Tuvok for his advice on this situation. And he knows just what tea to give her. How do they have power to spare for the replicators? I know, right? And we're always talking about replicator rations, except we're not. Well... Yeah, yeah, they have the replicator rations, and Tuvok, like, I, I don't know if the rations roll over. Like, if I don't use my ration today, do I have two tomorrow? Yes. Um, I mean, hopefully, yeah, that's usually how these sorts of things work. Because they sometimes talk about when they saved up replicator rations for a couple weeks to make Right, 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 here. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's possible that Tuvok doesn't replicate things very often. So, using one to make his captain feel more comfortable, that's nothing. Eh, okay. I also wonder, though, if these people and, and the, the people who we ultimately hope we can aspire to be living in a post-scarcity environment in the future where no one wants for anything and you can sort of Hegelian self-actualize on your own without any problems. I had a, a friend who I was talking with recently who said that he didn't see Star Trek as a sort of socialistic environment, but more like uh, a wishful thinking of the invisible hand ironing everything out perfectly in the future. But um, how do this group of people who really have never known scarcity, how do they manage scarcity? Like they seem to be doing really well with rationing their resources. And I feel like if you lived in a world where you just never had to want for anything, suddenly wanting for things would be kind of difficult. And I think about that in terms of the countries, the respective countries that we live in, we definitely have access to more resources than other people. And when those resources are no longer available or less available, things tend to go a little wacky. Yes, because they should they should have more trouble adjusting. Also, there's the simple fact that Neelix's kitchen, there's no way that's sustaining the entire crew. 
No, approximately there's what 300 people uh, uh, that are capable of being on a intrepid class starship if you take into account the amount of deaths that have happened without replacement you know you're still looking at over 200 crew members yeah neelix is feeding cool he's busy it's only 140 it's only 140 yeah they they tell they tell us the crew compliment uh, a couple of times. Yeah, in, they do. In in season one, and I think also in season two, I think we get an I think we get another info dump. Uh, I think either no, just at the end of season one, I think we got another info dump because there was the uh, in um the original crew compliment is one forty one, right? And then they you know they lost some folks when the caretaker pulled them away. Um, no, sorry, it was thirty seven who got the second info dump because it was a question of we have X crew, how many how many do we need at minimum to run the ship? Yeah, so we don't know the actual number because we don't know how many Maquis joined in Caretaker. We also don't know how many original crew died, so it's a nebulous number. But there, my guess is it's, it's not. It's probably one forty, one fifty, somewhere in there. Right, and we've lost a few crew mem- crew members. We're told in this episode. Actually, so never mind. I'm on xastrascientia.org, and they keep track of this every time the number changes. Uh, in fact, they list in alliances, it's 161. That's impressive. Actually, I'm sorry. No, it's 158 after alliances. 161 when alliances started, but three people died in alliances. But that's still too many people for Neelix's little kitchen to feed. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't know what the heck this, this ship is doing. And we had never really, I mean, we, we talked about the scarcity problem and how kind of poorly the show embraces it you know they pay lip service to it every so often like you know every few episodes like oh well we need blah 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 material to fix the widget but it's not like a constant worry and i feel like it should have been for at least the first two seasons and then you could and then after the first season or two you can kind of hand wave it away like we've gotten good at managing our scarcity so we're not going to talk about it anymore i have a dark thought when mm-hmm. crewmen die, I guess the replicator rations go up? I mean, a little. Well, you know, for multiple reasons, actually. Because that's organic matter that can be fed into the replicator. Oh my gosh. Vulcan <laughs> spice tea is people. Waste not, want not. Tuvok talks about Spock. I'm just going to change the... Change the <laughs> yes. I, I got us into this, I'll get us out. Tuvok talks about Spock, isn't that cool? Yes, that is. <laughs> Star Trek Six. And now we have gotten a, a name drop of a character from every Star Trek show. Except Enterprise. Which didn't exist yet. Or Discovery. Well, no, technically no. Spock's going to be in season two of Discovery, so... Ooh. Actually, we will have a name drop of a character who was on Discovery. Archie. Pike? Pike, yeah. N- not, not Discovery, I'm sorry, not Discovery, uh, Enterprise. Archer? We- Is that from Cochran? Oh, Okay. Because he's in, they show a video of him in the first episode of of Enterprise. Tubok convinces Janeway that perhaps an alliance is the right way to go. He gives us the anecdote from Star Trek VI about how Spock had advocated for the Klingons to be brought in, to for an alliance to be formed with the Klingon Empire in order to bring stability and peace to the region. She takes us all in and then calls a staff meeting. And says, yep, I'm going to make an alliance with the Kazon. And Harry Kim is not pleased with this. No, and he flippantly says, well, why don't we just call Seska then? And everyone's like, hey, you know. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what we should do. And Chakotay is understandably a little apprehensive at that. Uh, yeah, like, all of them should be more apprehensive about that idea. Yes. Also, during this same meeting, Neelix volunteers to go talk to some people he knows about possibly getting another Kazon sect involved. Yes. Which, interestingly, Janeway tells Neelix to take his shuttle to that planet, and then he takes the Starfleet shuttle. Yeah, I thought she had said, take his shuttle. Mr. Neelix, prepare to take your shuttle to Cerberus. And then, next thing we see is a Starfleet shuttle landing on the planet. So that's another shuttle we lost, by the way. It could have been in, like, the cargo bay of one of the trade ships. Oh, that's true. Why does every Star Trek show need to have a dancing girl scene? Yeah. I was wondering that. I also like the fact that she apparently will spend the night with a person who can solve a puzzle. And I just feel like that's that's sort of the strangest feat of strength or intellectual prowess. or, or I don't know. I just feel like... Maybe there is no solution to that puzzle. That was my thought. Just her way of being like, go away, stupid person. I don't want to talk to you now. Solve this puzzle and I'll sleep with you. And then he's like, duh, okay. And he'll just be there until he dies. Yeah, that was my... I I figured there's no actual solution to that puzzle. Just like there's no actual solution to the puzzle of why Star Trek has to have these dancing girls. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, right? Like, like, seriously, every show has a scene like this yes yes they do and you know if we're gonna like to to reference our other podcast stargate weekly i don't think i've ever seen a dancing girl scene in any of the stargate shows it's certainly not like a trope that has to happen like if there is one it's not like there's one in every show wasn't there one in um uh that terrible first season episode with the mongols i'm actually i actually can't remember because it was a terrible episode and i hate it emancipation that's what it was called i would say actually with given star stargate's cultural background of being egyptian arabian mediterranean in its style you would say that like perhaps a dancing belly dancer girl would be a little bit more believable i guess but yeah it's just sort of tossing in like i guess basically it's it's star trek's way of saying like "Ooh, this is a cd bar there's a there's a there's a lady up there dancing and that means that it's a it's a cd place where you might get shot or something i don't know i just feel like yeah. to a degree there there's there's a bit of a bit of what i like to call the star wars bleed where yes <laughs> of course you always think you always think of the um the jab of the hut his his lair sort of scene yeah that lady dancing around and that's always sort of what you always get back to now, interestingly, until last year, I, w- I would have been able to counter that by saying that Stargate has frontal nudity and Star Trek doesn't. But, well, that's changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but at the very least, Stargate's nudity was not lewd. True. And I prefer the director's cut of that episode that doesn't have that scene anyway. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just unnecessary. But... This is not our Star- Stargate show, and we do, in fact, have a Stargate show, so... Yeah, you should listen to that. We won't be talking about Dancing Girls. No, it's true. So I got some more questions about the Star the Star Trek universe, in addition to the fact that all CD bars must have Lay Dancing Girls. Me. Neelix is talking to his contact, and he's saying, you know, I'm on board this fancy ship now. And he's like, yeah, no, we do know. Everyone knows. Do they have 
things like broadcast news in the galaxy, or at least in the quadrant? How do they how do they get their news? How do they get their information? I assumed it was sort of like word of mouth. It's like, hey, did you hear about Voyager and Neelix is on Voyager now? Well, I mean, that would definitely explain the whole ship of death thing. Yeah. But, like, who the heck cares about Neelix that that sort of information spreads? Neelix is more well-known than we think. <laughs> Apparently. I don't know. I teach in a in a rural environment, and word really does travel. People I've never met know me sometimes. Like, I'll stop at uh, the one of the country stores kind of nearby, and people will be like, hello, and they, like, ask me how school's going and how, you know, if the classes I'm teaching and stuff, and I'm just, like, looking at them wide-eyed, being like, I've never seen you in my life, and you yet, you know. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, so your blood type. Uh, I was wondering about that. Like, it, it, the, the, the amount that they know so quickly without me having any reference for who they are, eh, word travels fast, uh, I have to say. And, and I would assume that it does in space, too. I just assume K's on like to gossip. In space, no one can hear you scream, but everyone can hear you gossip. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it just feels like the like I, I yeah I I guess it must be word of mouth. So, but this also lends credence to the okay. So how are they? So first off, how are they still in Kazon space? Secondly, how are they still in areas where everyone knows all about Voyager? Like, how do the Kazon have like warp nine point nine 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 five ships or something? Like that's the only explanation I have is that like the Kazon or other and other people in this area have faster ships than Voyager. So they're like, "Oh, look at these poor people heading home, but they're going slowly, so they're going to be in our territory for a while." I I feel like it's come up a couple of times that Janeway has said, you know, Mr. Paris set a course for home, second star on the right and straight on till morning, warp 8. Like yeah. she, she very rarely is saying maximum warp. Yeah, they can't actually sustain maximum warp forever. Yes, uh, but so it, it is it maybe because this would be a good retcon or, or a good explanation for this. Is it possible that maybe, despite the fact that they apparently don't have shields or a lot of other tech, that the Kazon and some of the other species in the area have better engines than Starfleet? Maybe for the type of space, like if you think about, and I know this really, as far as I know from any episode I've seen of Voyager, this never really comes up, but a race car is going to do you no good on a gravel road. And if you think about maybe the idea that this area of Kazon space, one of the reasons why they have limits that they do is because they're adapting to a different type of spatial or dimensional issues with with you know what what uh, what the speed of light would be maybe there's a gravitational issue you know there is lensing that takes place out in space and stuff so maybe hmm. it's you know something along those lines where voyager is basically a ferrari but it's driving around a, a football pitch so yeah it can go as fast as it wants but it's going to spin its wheels a bit hmm. interesting i think a lot about space i love space <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it more just that Voyager's cruising speed is, let's say, warp 8, and Kazon messenger ships are cruising only at warp 9. I was, as an American, I was, like, stuck on football pitch for half a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a pitch with a football, it's a throw, is, is what I was, I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so yeah, so Neelix is talking to his contact, and then Kit's captured and hauled away. And no reason is given. He's 
taken to this cave where he encounters a bunch of other people, and we have finally met the Trabe. Yeah, who we've heard about twice already. Whom yes. we've heard about twice already. About whom we've heard twice mm, already. Nice. Interestingly, uh, part of the reason why they did this episode is because when he was writing Alliances, Kenneth Biller wrote a big, long treatise about the history of the Kazan and the Trabe, and they're like, we shouldn't put this to waste, so we should use this. I'm glad that we did get the Kazan Trabe backstory and history. It's interesting, and it adds it adds a lot of depth to the Kazan. It does, and... and... I, Thad, you and I spoke about this at STLV about the idea that the Kazon Trabe situation and the way the Kazon run themselves is very much along the lines of what the writers would say would be like uh, LA gangs and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I originally was like, wow, that's a really neat sort of thing. And so I rabbit holed LA gang culture and. Mm-hmm. I feel like their explanation is sort of a mile wide and an inch deep, where, where actually there's so much more to it. And I will talk maybe a bit about, that. about the idea that really the way Janeway acts in terms of being a representative of the Federation, really she is acting in a way that would only work to subjugate the Kazon and help the trade get back into a, like a hegemonic position. And that sort of gets kind of muddled a little bit i think is the best way to put it and at the end when she kind of gives her little propaganda speech about having our principles in this place in the middle of nowhere is actually the most important thing and yada yada it's kind of like did janeway did you learn anything from this whole escapade like did you no. did you like she, she clearly didn't like she is just like there's a there's a bullheadedness to basically the entire senior officer staff of of USS Voyager that that kind of makes me want to go crazy. So, yeah. Oh yeah, no. They're all they're all super stubborn. So, as far as the gang thing goes, the way I see it is the Kazon are like the writers of Star Trek in the 90s viewed gangs. Mhm. Not necessarily the way gangs actually are. And I I would actually really recommend um your listeners and you guys, if you haven't, there's a really good documentary called Made in, uh, Crips in the Bloods Made in America, or Made in America, The Crips in the Bloods. It's narrated by Forrest Whitaker, of all people, which is pretty okay. cool. And it talks about the material conditions that basically caused gangs to form. So, like, if I could, just to do a quick synopsis, Go basically, right ahead. you've got these young black people, young black men, mostly, growing up in Los Angeles, and they're divided by their their neighborhoods, right? So you've got Watts on one side and then Linwood across the street and they couldn't they literally couldn't cross Alameda Boulevard, right? If they did, cops would would come to them and be like, "What are you doing here?" sort of idea. Or they would say like, "Hey, you, you know, you know, you look like you've been robbing." And they're like, "Like what? Like no, I haven't." And what does a robber even look like? And then the cop <laughs> would be like, "Well, robber looks like you." And you see like just the heavy-handed shotgun in the face style treatment basically sort of to create these invisible social barriers that exist between uh, Americans of European heritage versus Americans of African heritage. And this this builds over time. And so one one of their explanations is, you know, even even the idea of the Boy Scouts of America, one of the uh, one of the document documentary interviewees says, you know, like, my mom took me to the Boy Scouts. And, you know, the, the leader seemed nice. And basically, he said, you know, we'd love to have you. But unfortunately, this is a white troop. So you have to go away. And so 
ultimately what happens is they create their own clubs and their own groups. But because they're coalescing, that, of course, attracts the attention of the police. And then the police start trying to infiltrate or try to break down these groups, which eventually causes more violence. And it kind of builds off of that. Then you get you get the uh, the 19 the late 1960s and the civil rights movement kind of brought in with the anti war movement, and then the rise of the Black Panthers who are trying to feed the people and stuff. But unfortunately, they follow an ideology that the Americans don't like. Um, and they get infiltrated by COINTELPRO and the FBI, and all of their leaders are either killed or imprisoned. So then you get the next generation of African-American children growing up in L.A. who have seen basically any kind of attempt at building some kind of viable cultural solid point of of direction they're directionless right all of their leaders are gone all of their parents you know who who had any kind of clout are either dead or in jail and so they end up like planets out of orbit they're 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 culturally disoriented um they have no no connection and that's where you get the crips because they're going to they're going to form some kind of social group whether you like it or not and there's a statement said by a guy named Kumasi which is actually something i use in my teaching quite a bit when talking about the reserve system in canada or about gang culture or any kind of dysfunctional culture uh, especially when put under a hegemonic um class order basically that's divided by race and class and all those sorts of things is part of the mechanics of oppressing people is to pervert them to the extent that they become the instruments of their own oppression. And I think that got missed completely in this episode. And that ultimately is why gangs happen. That is why you see criminality taking place is the system is inherently structurally racist. The system is inherently structurally hegemonic. And as long as we allow ourselves um, the three of us as, you know, Anglo-Saxon heritage males, we can benefit from this for the rest of our lives without ever noticing. But that doesn't mean the problem isn't there. And yeah, I think maybe some somewhat the Federation prime directive idea of us holding these ideals, they don't understand that those ideals are actually what can do the oppressing to some degree. And being blind to that is sort of a, a type of culpability to the whole issue. So I rambled there for a long time and I thank you all for listening. And if I didn't make sense, sorry. And if I did cool, no, you did. <laughs> so watch Crips in the Bloods. It's really good. Okay. <laughs> it's very violent though. So if you can't take, um, actual physical, real seeing people get hurt, seeing dead bodies, like serious content warning for those of us who, who just don't like seeing that sort of thing. Um, I would recommend not watching it, but if you can handle it, if you, if you've got, you know, that, 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 that sort of thing, definitely I check it out. So Neelix gets enlisted in the Trey prison break. Yes. Yeah. So so Neelix uh, gets introduced introduced to Mabus. Uh, Mabus is like we were captured a few days ago. Every so often they haul one of our people away. That person never comes back. But don't worry. Some some of our folks are on their way to get to to rescue us, and I hope that we can count on you to help us escape. Man, that one case on guard was not the brightest, was he? Yeah. It's like. Huh, there's all that shooting bright lights going on out there. What's this little ball thing? I should better kick give it, it a little yeah. Better give it a little kick there. Oh no, I died. Yeah. Not 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 a bright guy. So yeah, so Neelix and the trade, they all escape. We cut back to Voyager. They are getting increasingly concerned about Neelix's whereabouts, and then they detect a Kazon Armada closing in. But lo and behold, it's the Trabe. 
Yeah, it's like the scene in um, Return of the Jedi when Chewie sticks his head out of the walker. Yes. If only the Trabe were Ewoks. <laughs> yes, if only. They also they also definitely make, make the Trabe look a lot more like us, I guess is the best way to put it. Like there's there's yes. a bit of bonk bonk on the head there of like, oh, look at this group of people who just have a slight wrinkle in their T zone compared to the K zone that look like, you know, they're wearing upholstery on their heads and, you know, sort of that weird kind of coral like bloom on their foreheads and and they're yeah, there's definitely an attempt skin. to make the Kazon the other and the Trabe like us, because they also look just in general more civilized than the Kazon. Also, I, I, I can't help but notice, the again, the bonk-bonk on the head of the Kazon being a darker pigmentation. That's definitely something yeah. I spotted. <clears throat> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I mean, it's not the first time that Star Trek has gone down that road. Are you implying, Barry, that Star Trek would show some sort of allegory for uh, situations and issues in real life? Because this is the first I've ever heard of that. <laughs> it's a, it, as I said earlier, it's a mirror. And sometimes, if you don't like what you're looking at, then maybe you need to look a little harder, because mm -hmm. maybe it's a thing that we're dealing with. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> we, get a, we get a nice sit-down dinner between Mavis and the Voyager senior staff. And now is when we get like the full backstory, which for all, you know, by all accounts, it doesn't seem like Mavis like hid anything or pulled any punches in the backstory. He admits that his people had sequestered the Kazon and helped contribute and, you know, had, you know, ultimately led to their own, you know, they, they had caused the uprising and their downfall. So, He's not trying to hide anything, is what I'm stumbling to get out, which gives him some credit, which gets promptly taken away later in the episode. A little bit. So here's a thought. Was he saying that because he knew that's what Voyager, that he knew that's what the Starfleet crew and Janeway in particular would want to hear? I mean, I guess... I'd say the whole thing is calculated. Absolutely. He's, he, he knows his audience and he's trying to tug at that sort of, there's a, there's a, maybe a sentimentality to it that, that he's trying to get. He, you know, the idea of like, you know, we, we knew we were once the bad people, but now we have changed our ways. Like I feel, I just see again, the senior staff of, of Voyager wanting to see that redemptive, realization because i think that is something that they value is 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 redemption is the idea that the bad can become good right like they, when they talk about seska uh balana says like i don't know her anymore right like it's not that she's like she's evil now it's i don't know her anymore meaning that there could be a chance that seska could still turn i don't think balana is completely given up on her because she does hold those federation-esque values yes she's originally maquis but it, it still holds true that, that they would have the same sort of cultural ideals in that respect, I think. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess what I'm trying to determine is, did he mean it when he said that they brought it on themselves, or was he only saying that because he knew that was how he could tug at the heartstrings of Voyager? Hmm. I think the latter. I, I, I think that everything that he had said was true and even to a certain degree like even if he was saying it only to tug on the heartstrings there is some element of truth to it 
that he had that like he would have to recognize like he'd have to be really obtuse i think to not recognize that gosh maybe the way that my people treated their people is what led to this whole problem of course then again historically white people have done a really good job of being obtuse so never mind Mm. he doesn't believe it at all uh (laughs) (laughs) but i mean if you think about if you think about the worst of us and I mean, people in Western society like Richard Spencer, who is a white supremacist piece of garbage, he yes. actually says that he likes white privilege, like he loves it. And he understands that if, if, if that's the case, then he understands that, you know, in places like Baltimore, in Los Angeles, in Detroit, that that even the way houses were sold were sold on racial lines, that even the way, you know, schools were run were run on racial lines. So I guess... For the Trabe to be aware of the fact that their whole system created a uh, the components for why things are the way they are, and yet still be deep down unrepentant about it, I mean, that sort of is the conceit of, of white supremacy, and the conceit that... You know, people who who could just live their entire lives without ever having to deal with these imbalances and these incongruencies within our society, right? Like, I know people who are just like, I don't concern myself with this because honestly, they don't have to. And I think one of the greatest conceits is to see a problem and not see it as a problem because it's not a problem to you. And then the even further of that, what makes it evil is when you start capitalizing on that. And the trade capitalize not only on advantages that they have from past hegemony they also capitalize on the compassionate nature of janeway and her crew they're spiders man they're they're terrible yeah man this episode's yeah. heavy yeah no, we're Sorry, getting guys <laughs> no no it's fine it's good and this is and this is a good episode to you know to to get deep like that on yeah like barry says these deep profound things and i'm just like yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> uh, all I have to say is your guys' attention to detail as a podcast, I never, ever forget your sudden and amazing reference to pop-up video a couple episodes ago. And to this day, that is like the most surprising moment where I'm like, wow, these guys do their homework. So by all means. <laughs> well, you know, Stuart uh, did. I had never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> so Janeway and Mavis take a take a stroll through the hallway. Janeway's like, hey, you seem like you're upstanding folk, even though you're terrible. Oh. But it's, you know, it seems like you're trying to be less terrible. Let's join forces. Mavis is like, yeah, I like this idea, but let me do you one better. Let's call for a conference for yeah, everyone. And this is where he is definitely manipulating. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love Let's- how the camera angle purchase us on their shoulders as well. I, fa- I find that there's that um, if you think about how camera angles work, it's it's it when when you when a camera is perched on the shoulders of actors, not in front, right? It's not that you are part of the conversation. Like really, you 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 need to be like it's as if we're listening in on it, and it, it really kind of puts you in the in the mindset of one of the two characters. And if you watch it from Janeway's point of view, if you watch Kate Mulgrew's character reacting and then you watch i forget the actor's name um who plays the trabe um you watch it separately like hit hit back on netflix a few times and watch it again and see how each actor reacts differently to their conversation it's really fascinating uh, yeah no, I, I noticed that a little bit like how how janeway would like perk up 
uh-huh. as the conversation was going on because she's all in on this idea and she's sort of you know she's envisioning this mutual cooperation arrangement between the two of them and i did notice a little bit especially on the second watching how mavis's face was like you know was be- was betraying him effectively yeah and you you did get a little glimmer of him, of him thinking you know that the things are falling into place effectively we cut to seska and kala who now have heard the news about this proposed conference and seska bullies kala into going because she makes the argument that you know if this turns into something you don't want to be the only maj who didn't participate and if it doesn't turn into anything you still want to be there so you can get an idea of how strong the trade fleet is, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's, there's benefits to going no matter what the outcome. And it's this Kala's attitude towards Seska has always been weird to me. Yes. He's like at the same time dismissive of her because she's a woman and also like listening to everything she says. It's yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting kind of dynamic that the two of them have because, I mean, both are, are ruthless but in, in different ways, right? Like, I think in a lot of cases, the Kazon, with their whole warlord mentality, are actually sort of prisoners within their own culture. Like, it reminds me of the samurai, right? If you do something dumb and then you're ordered by your master to commit suicide, really, like, you're done. Like, you know, like you sneezed at dinner in front of the shogun, so now you have to kill yourself. And it's like, Ugh. It, 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 you, you see how much like that kind of feudal warrior style lifestyle really isn't glorious at all. It's it's a prison. It's it, you're, mm-hmm. you're basically shackled to this, and he he can tell. Like Magicola is no idiot. He's like, no, that the uh, I don't know. This doesn't rub me right. I don't like this. And she's like, you have to go. And she's right. And I think that's the most frustrating part is, you know, he doesn't he doesn't really have a choice to go and. Seska knows that she needs to maintain his power because if he isn't maintained, then she becomes redund- redundant too, right? And then you've kind of got that sort of um, gendered, sexualized power dynamic where, you know, she may not have power outwardly, but as long as she can kind of run things through him, she can she can kind of attain a certain level of power. Um, historically, the... Um, there was actually a whole shogunate that was run. It wasn't the emperor who was in charge of Japan. It wasn't the shogun who was in charge. It was actually his second in command, but his second in command was actually being basically told what to do by his wife. And, and it's, it's this weird plinko of, of power that kind of rolls down. And you see this in, in feudal societies a lot. Plinko of power. I like plinko of power. That might be the title (laughs) of this episode. Plinko of power. We, uh, we head to the conference site and Neelix's contact is back. Apparently they're friends again. And he's very proud of his triangle. I finally decided on a triangle. Does that seem appropriate? Does the table shape seem acceptable? He is. But he's also telling Neelix of something that is happening. Yes. Oh, no. I We, we had skipped a, li- a little bit of an info dump where we Neelix had gone back to Sobras to set up the conference, and while he was there, he had found out that mercenaries had been like scoping out the conference site. And the and Janeway and Chakotay and everyone else is like, oh, uh, one of the Majes is going to try to start something uh-huh. at the conference. So we, need to, so we need to watch for anybody who tries to skip out early on the conference. 
and we need to, ha- like, and you know, Chakotay maintain a constant transporter lock. Well, they weren't wrong about that, right? So now we're back at the conference at the triangular table about which that one guy was so proud. <laughs> the Majas all filter in, and there's food and drink, and yeah, he did. He went all out on this. Hey, you know, he's he's trying to do it right, and you know, going back to your to your feudal lord uh, thought there, Barry, is he, he talks about how he's so happy that they chose Sobris for the site of the conference. His Maj has gained much renown for it, and he in turn was rewarded because he was the one who was contacted by Neelix, etc., etc. So there's definitely sort of like glimmers of that in that little exchange there as well. Oh, definitely. It's... I, I always like uh, there was the one episode where Chakotay is on a, a doing kind of his own meditative time and he spends time with that Kazon boy who talks about like him getting his name and stuff. I really do feel like people rag on the Kazon too much. They are not discount Klingons. They are 100% their own species mm-hmm. and they have their own dynamic and everything. And yeah, no, I, I do. I do like them and would always be happy to see them characterized again in future Star Trek. Yes. Yeah, they're definitely. I, I think that the Kazon are, they're poorly maligned in the way that they're painted. It, it just sometimes, for me at least, is a bit much. Like, it's all laid on thick at times, and and can... I'm I'm glad that we don't frequently have Kazon episodes back-to-back, because it is laid on awfully thick with them, and so far they're really, like, the only baddies that we've come across, which is which contributes to well, that. the Vidians. Yeah, but... We, we, We've only encountered them once. And so, like, they're the same as any other throwaway thing. Like, the Kazans are the ones who keep returning. Well, we'll see the Vidians again a couple more times this season, but yes. Okay, but we haven't yet, and so my point still stands, which is that the Kazans are the only ones that we've seen returning. We saw the Vidians twice. They took Neelix's lungs and they turned Torres into a Klingon. Oh, yes, you're right, you're right. Okay, fine. It's not that dissimilar from Deep Space Nine, where it's all Cardassians all the time. Until the Dominion shows up. Yeah. And even then, it's often Cardassians as part of the Dominion. Uh, right, exactly. So, whereas with, I think, Next Generation, you you saw, like, a wider range of, of aliens, both friendly and foe. Yeah, because they had the recurring ones. They had the Romulans and... Right. Etc. But yes, there was definitely more of them. Because... I yes. Would, yeah. I would say that, like, the reason behind that, though, is because Deep Space Nine is, like, literally a inter interstellar frisbee throw from Cardassia Prime. And then with Voyager, you know, as we said, they're taking a long time to, to scoot their way through Kazon space, whereas what is what is the Enterprise doing? It's, it is literally seeking out new life and new civilization, so they are going to see a much more broad array of of species and aliens and all the rest whereas voyager is sort of stuck in a spot and ds9 really is just like a like an intergalactic outpost so variety will be limited Mm. yes yeah that's fair so the conference kicks off kala is not on board and he's really the only maj who's talking like i think another one does chime in at a certain point or maybe like one of their lieutenants or something does but Cull is the one who's doing almost all the talking for the Kazon, and he's he's not crazy about this idea. He he thinks that the Trave are just trying to get themselves back into power. And as it turns out, he's not wrong, <laughs> because they are betrayed. Nice. I worked a little while on that. And it was this it was this moment where um I was sitting in a movie theater watching the second 
of the Kelvin verse movies and I went, Oh my gosh, they just drew from Voyager. I was just always so, I don't know. It sort of vindicated Voyager for me in a lot of ways. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. Cause this, yeah. With yeah, the, yeah. yeah it exact totally same does. Exact same. <laughs> yeah. The approaching ship, I feel like it took longer than it needed to, to approach like what, like, and, and then like sat there for a second before it opened fire like the the setup was kind of drawn out on the ship arriving, which I feel like if you were trying to cut the head off of multiple snakes at once, that was the wrong way to go about it. Yeah. Like maybe put a bomb under the table or something, you know? Yeah, and also like this this ship apparently now like most most of these inter you know they can go to space, they can fly around on planets and stuff. They normally don't disturb much when they're flying around, but this one I don't know if it had like a like a like a sprocket loose or something because it's just rattling like a like a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Yeah, I thought that the fact that the Kazon didn't react at all until Janeway is telling them to get down was, and there was the one guy that didn't even then uh, was strange. It, yeah, it was all it was it was a very odd attack i was also kind of confused as to how it was able to take three three direct torpedo hits and not (laughs) blow up like that was pretty impressive so it had shields so what was up with that well uh, i mean we we actually do see in the very opening scenes when voyager's being attacked that when it fires back shields are being affected so apparently the kazon do have shields i guess they just only use them when they're attacking things or something like i i don't know one way or another they were able to beam Chakotay off the case on ship, even though they should not have been able to because shields. Who knows? Yeah, and taking three direct hits with from a photon torpedo for me is kind of like I am surprised that a that ship survived the attack, and b given I usually the the destructive power of a photon torpedo, I think phasers would have been a way better choice because the shockwave from a photon torpedo exploding would have probably blown that building to smithereens too. Oh, yeah, I hadn't considered that angle myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved that scene when I first saw it back in the day, like somewhere pre, pre-Netflix, it's, uh, on, on some syndication, some syndicated television station deal. I remember thinking like, wow, that's like a, it's like a drive-by shooting, which is our gang, our gang relation, right? Yeah. Always comes back to the gangs, apparently. Mm-hmm. Gangs of the Delta Quadrant instead of gangs yeah. of New York. I often thought too, like in Into Darkness, it would have been funny if there was like a Kazon like bringing in drinks or something like that in the episode. That that would have been an even more kind of sort of tongue in cheek nod of like some per- you know alien that most people who watched the Kelvin shows were just there to be entertained. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have never made the connection, but we we Trek folk would have been like, "Whoa, it's a Kazon," and that would have been funny and cool. But it, I mean, it was enough that even when watching the movie, you could hear a couple like people going. In the movie theater because they're going. Oh my gosh, that's a Voyager reference. <laughs> I don't remember that happening in my th- in the theater I was with, but also, uh, you would you wouldn't have gotten that reference anyway at the time, would you, Stuart? Uh, no. Yeah, I think I had. I, I think at that point I had actually like seen all of Voyager by the time that Into Darkness came out. Yeah, you had. I'm pretty sure, but, but it wasn't. Yet. Yeah, like th- this this episode would not have stuck out any more than anything else would have. Yeah, because I saw Into Darkness in the theater with you and a mutual friend who has only seen the movies. So, yeah, I didn't have anyone to have that moment with. Yeah, good nod, good nod. It was, yeah. I think that we're pretty much have wrapped up the episode at this point. The only, the last thing is something that we had alluded to earlier, which is Janeway gives her, you know, rah rah inspirational 
go get em speech about you know if we're in a land of no rules then we always have to stick to our rules because our rules rule <laughs> yeah uh do either of you have any have any final notes in the original script in the original script Cullo was going to die in the attack Oh, yeah. thank goodness he didn't. He was he's such a fun character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, no, he, I I like Kulla as as a returning uh villain. I I I do like him in that role. Uh I just don't care for his dynamic with Seska and I don't like Seska. But that's fair. Yeah, they I mean the hamming up of the misogyny in that respect is a little bit on the frustrating side, but I do feel like the actors committed really hard and worked well. And it, it watching the dialogue between Kola and Seska, though perhaps a little bit jarring to, to some, I, I do find it interesting. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. this is a good episode. And it was not as bad as the last Kola Seska episode with the creepy. Yes, Maj, yes, Maj, yes, Maj scene. Yeah. Thank you so much for reminding us of the Yes Maj scene. You're welcome. <laughs> but no, Barry, did you have uh, anything else that you wanted to to mention? Anything else that tickled your brain from the episode? Well, I would just say that like Delta Flyer itself, your guys' show, is is a really great way for me to re-engage with a series that, frankly, I just haven't engaged with enough. And with episodes like this, again, this sort of... A lot of people mention that Deep Space Nine is kind of the snot-nosed kid that no one likes but i would actually say voyager gets a lot more heat for it and this episode given some of its flaws and whatever else look at the amount of discussion and debate that it can bring in so many different directions so this is one of my most favorite voyager episodes um scorpions another one of my favorites Um, yeah yeah like just these ones where where you have to like I said, it, it moves on a rail and it, it makes you it, it, it makes you think you're making your own conclusions. But when you can kind of move yourself outside of it, much like that hallway scene between um, Mavis and Janeway, when you really sit back and look at the dynamics and you kind of break yourself out of that rail, you can actually maybe enjoy more of the episode that way and maybe get into the minds of the writers and how the actors portray it. Um, they uh, They worked hard on this episode and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. No, this is a very good episode. Uh, it's not one... I don't think I saw this when it originally aired, because I remember watching it again later in syndication and being enthralled by it, because I... When I first watched Voyager as a kid, like, a lot of the, you know, heavy political stuff went right over my head. But... I, re- I, I have a very clear memory of watching this when I was in high school because the local UPN affiliate was showing Voyager in the middle of the night and I was setting my VCR and recording it. I used to have like 50 or 60 tapes filled with Voyager episodes. Uh, <laughs> maybe not quite that. I had a lot anyway. And I, I specifically remember watching this one. For some reason, it stands out a lot as when I first watched this episode, and I and I still really like it. If you think of just what was being aired at the time, I'm not certain if Stargate was up and running yet. To be honest, not yet. Guys. No, no. But Star, uh, Stargate's ninety seven. Yeah, I would say like Stargate inherits and builds on more of those kind of political messages and stuff like that. But if you think about the fair that was being played, like this is at the heyday of TGIF and, you know, X-Files is playing and stuff like that. And I would say that 
again, Star Trek shows its advanced understanding of of deeper issues and stuff, but it has to work within sort of the the parameters of the time. Like anything more, you know, heavy handed or anything more hyper political, UPN would have nixed it. So again, I do think that they're constrained by the rules of the societal zeitgeist at the time. But ultimately, yeah, this this episode, watching it for the first time as a young person, it's really hard hitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I enjoyed it a lot. I, I definitely enjoyed getting the back you know the the exposition on the trabe and the Kazon. seeing the ever increasing dire straits for voyager is also interesting and i enjoyed that as well and i'm hoping that we're going to see the repercussions of this episode play out in the future star trek is usually okay with that sort of thing um with not like especially for something like this i feel i feel like we're going to be seeing the repercussions of this in the in the next time we see the case on and i'm i'm looking forward to that yeah uh we'll see the we'll see the case on again we'll see Kala again we will not see the trade again i do not believe i think this is okay. the only time we see the trade okay well speaking of time this yes. uh this episode ran a little long and i think we've just about hit our listeners uh threshold for tolerance yeah Speaking of which, that's our next episode. <sighs> nice, nice catch. That's a nice one. Yeah, Threshold is next. Thank you for listening this week. If you enjoyed this, you should also check out our other podcast, Stargate Weekly. You can find or review both on your podcast player of choice, and you can also reach us at our email address, deltaflyerpod at gmail.com. I'm at Tyrannicus on Twitter. And I'm at Gamicus. And you can follow the show at delta flyer pod you can find me at uh, at b j o r n d e f j o r d and you can also find my uh my show that i host uh, co-host with uh shashank uh at politrex p-o-l-i-t-r-e-k-s we are a member of the tricorder transmissions podcast network so there's a bit of rabbit holing you can go in that direction if political star trek fair is not your not your taste you can always jump on any of the other shows but uh, a lot of love over for uh, for delta flyer too you guys uh, you guys do fine work here well thanks so well, much thank you very much that's very kind of you to say i also listen to politrex and i very much enjoy that we're uh we're, we're we've we've got to have you guys on sooner than later so we'll be in touch and that's our show yeah